0: Good morning, New Song L.A. You know, I love watching these, uh, these battles between Lael and Noj. It's just a constant struggle, you know, every week watching them struggle to see who's going to come out on top. Today we're going to be continuing our, our series entitled The Struggle is Real. And last week we were on the topic of justice. We talked about the struggle for justice. Today we are going to be talking about the struggle for just systems. And I realize um, after some conversations uh, this past week, looking at the message from last week and looking at all the things that have taken place within the last several weeks in our country and around the world, actually, with protests for Black Lives Matter, and as the government and leaders are responding and changes are actually being made rapidly, uh, we got some great conversations going among our team and among, among other members of the congregation and friends. And I realize that when you talk about race issues in America, it can be very complicated and it can cause visceral reactions in people. So I want to set a little bit of context as we jump into our message today, our message today being about the struggle for just systems. I want to set a little bit of context uh, when we talk about this issue of race. So first of all, let me tell you what racism is not in most of our conversations. Most of our conversations about race, racism, we are not talking about the difference between good people and bad people. We are not talking about the difference between a person who has hatred in their heart towards another group and a person who does not. So in talking about racism, most of the time we are talking about systemic racism, which is not about how an individual feels. In fact, it's not about an individual at all. It's about how systems are designed and how those systems produce particular outcomes. Today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that illustrates this point and hopefully relate that to how race has functioned in the United States. So uh, if, um, if uh, you will... Pray with me as we jump into God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord, and thank you, God, that your word guides us in every area of life. I pray that you'll open our eyes to understand your ways and that we will be able, Lord, to be your agents of change in the world. I pray you'll guide me to say exactly what you once said today, no more, no less, that you may be glorified, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We read in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah 10, 1 through 2, we read these words. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Let's pause there and talk for a minute. When the Bible says, woe unto those who make unjust laws, we need to add that to any conversation that we have about law and order or about, say, Romans chapter 13 that talks about obeying governing authorities or passages that say submit yourselves to the governing authorities. Whenever we look at those passages, we need to couple those passages with passages like this one that we find in Isaiah chapter 10 that says, Woe unto those who make unjust laws. Because what God is saying is, look... I am telling you that law and government is actually from God. It is put there in order to establish order uh, among humans and to punish wrongdoers, to protect those who are vulnerable, et cetera. But God is also saying, I hold people accountable within a government system to have just laws. And woe is a curse from God. You have two ways that prophets would speak. They would either say, blessed... As Jesus said, blessed are those, etc., or they would say, woe. In other words, they are they are pronouncing either a blessing or a curse. So in this passage in Isaiah 10, we hear God basically saying, Cursed are those who create unjust laws, who create laws in order to take advantage of some, in order to oppress some people. Now, given that posture that God gives us, let's talk a little bit about race and about policing, et cetera, And then we're going to get, do a case study in the Bible, and hopefully we're going to do all of this in uh, the time it takes me to preach one sermon. So talking about race. First of all, race was constructed uh, beginning in Europe uh, around the 1700s. Race was constructed as a way to classify people. Uh, it began with kind of studying of skulls and this and that. And then it took classified people into categories based on their phenotype, based on their appearance and their comparison to Europeans. And so you have this classification of the Caucasians, the uh, Negroids, the Mongoloids, the, uh, the Polynesians, etc. And in these categorizations, there was a pseudoscience to it. They began things like measuring the, the width of skulls and looking at the structures and looking at how wide a person's nose was and how thick their lips were and what, uh, what level of melanin or pigmentation did they have, etc. And then they began to attribute different attributes to people who have uh, darker skin or what have you. Now what drove this was economics because in order to have cheap labor in the colonies, uh, they began to, to look at certain groups of people as being inferior and that led ultimately to the chattel slavery of Africans, et cetera, et cetera. Now without giving the full history lesson, I do want to point out that a lot of this history is not readily available to us in school because America has uniquely sought to glaze over aspects of our history. So we have a very shallow understanding of how these things operated, even though we may feel like, oh yeah, everybody knows about slavery, everybody knows about the history of Jim Crow and segregation, et cetera. Um, I'm amazed at how little we actually know. But having said that, we also have unprecedented access to information with the internet and the ability to search things and find original documents, et cetera. And so there's really no excuse for us not educating ourselves. And one of the blessings that has come out of the protests of Black Lives Matter has been the, the desire for people to educate themselves. So books on issues of justice and policing and race and so forth have been selling out on Amazon. And I encourage you, if you haven't started the process of educating yourself, please do so. In fact, I wanna recommend a couple of books to you as I'm talking about that. One of them is called The Color of Compromise. As I'm speaking to people who are Christ followers, The Color of Compromise is an excellent book to look at what has been the relationship of the church to issues of race historically in the United States. So please, if you have not yet read it, read The Color of Compromise. Having said that, let's talk a little bit more about this issue of race in the United States and policing. So with the end of of, um, slavery, with the Emancipation Proclamation, the federal government took control in the South and began to sort of reconstruct things and give um, Africans who were former slaves an opportunity but this led to a lot of political tensions as Southern representatives in the government were still quite powerful. And in a compromise under a guy by the name of Rutherford B. Hayes, there was an agreement made with the South for the federal troops and everyone to pull out and allow the South to kind of deal with the Negro however they wanted. And that led to the rise of domestic terrorism in the United States, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and, uh, and lynchings, etc. It also led to the uh, the evolution of policing in the US. In the South, the earliest form of policing that was was present in the South in the slaveholding states were called slave patrols. These were groups of people who were just ordinary white citizens who had the responsibility of patrolling to make sure that no slaves were running away, as slaves often had a lot of movement, carrying out business for their masters. They wanted to make sure that people were not running away, and so they had just the regular citizenry formed into these groups called slave patrols, and it was mandatory for you to serve. You could be fined as a white person, not serving, not taking your shift, on the slave patrols. So if you think about that, that meant that everyone within the white society in the South had the collective responsibility of quote unquote policing the movements of slaves to make sure that they were kept under control. After emancipation, this same mentality continued and that is what was behind the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and other forms of vigilanteism in the South. Now in the North, policing took on a different form. And it was uh, the waves of immigration and unrest caused the people in the North to also want to kind of keep control of people. But this, this um, original formation of police forces was also very much focused on controlling the actions and the movements of former slaves who were moving to the North. And so slavery led to a migration, or the, the release of slaves led to a migration north, and African Americans in the north were heavily policed and monitored for their behavior as well. And there was a lot of um, there was a lot of resentment about uh, former slaves actually getting good jobs and beginning to develop economic prosperity, etc. Until uh, riots began to break out, the most one of the most egregious being the one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, in 1921, when the, the place that was known as Black Wall Street was ransacked by a race riot, hundreds and hundreds of people killed, thousands of bu- businesses destroyed, et cetera. But this kind of thing broke out all over the United States, and it was, it was often uh, allowed by the police forces that were more focused on keeping the, the, the black people under control. Now, I'm going to fast forward here because there's way too many data points for me to cover in one sermon, but I want to hit some pretty, pretty important ones to give you an understanding of how we got to where we are today and to make it clear that where we are today is not just by default, where we have to be. We got here by decisions and design along the way, and we can actually change things if we recognize that things are not working properly. And I'll show you an example of that in scripture in a moment. But let me take you to the 1970s. I'm a, I'm a child of the 60s. I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. And so I remember some of the changes that I'm going to describe to you. But if you look at the 1970s, when Richard Nixon was in office, one of the concerns that Nixon had was the protest movements that were arising at that time. There was a protest against the Vietnam War. There was also a protest against police brutality, against segregation, and all of these things breaking out. And Nixon made a decision to change the laws and change the policies in the United States in order to One, secure his position of power in government and to kind of control the opposition that he was running into. I'm going to, even before we look at some of these scripture passages, I'm going to show you a quote from a former uh, aide of Richard Nixon to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So let's take a look at this quote from a guy named John Ehrlichman. John Ehrlichman was uh, the domestic policy chief for Richard Nixon. And here's what he said in an interview, actually, in uh, Harper's Magazine uh, back in 2016. You can find this article. You can also find it covered by CNN if you Google uh, Ehrlichman uh, with these quotes. But here's what he said. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we could make it illegal. We we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. Let me go on, he continues. He goes on to say, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. That's John Ehrlichman uh, talking about what came to be known as the war on drugs. Ehrlichman explains that they created the war on drugs in order to have a way of going after their political opponents, the anti-war hippie movement and the, the black consciousness movement, black people in America. This led to a skyrocketing of incarceration in the United States. We now incarcerate millions of people Uh, We were, the incarceration rate back at that time, we had maybe 300,000 people in uh, the prison system. Today, it's in the millions, and I'm going to show you some comparisons to other countries in a moment. But to let you know, the reason for this quote-unquote war on drugs was a political reason, and it led to the situation we are in today. Now, that's one data point. If you go forward also to the 1980s, you get another very significant data point. When, um uh, Ronald Reagan takes office, he doubles down on the war on drugs, while at the same time he's running a campaign called Iran-Contra, where he is funding these people, the Contras, in South America, and using money for that, from that movement to actually uh, uh, trade with Iran illegally. And then the planes that were used to bring arms to the Contras... Those those planes, those same planes, often came back to the United States from Nicaragua filled with cocaine. There's a guy here in California, his name was uh, Freeway Ricky Ross. He was actually arrested for for drug trafficking. He was actually doing sometimes as much as a million dollars a day in cocaine traffic. But what Ricky Ross explains is that the cocaine coming into the United States was actually often coming in on CIA planes. Some of you may look at this and say, oh man, that's conspiracy theories, Pastor. Please, do your research. You will find out this is not some some crazy idea. These are factual things. And so while there was a war on drugs on one hand, you had complicity on the other with allowing drugs to actually come into uh, the black community and in particular here in Los Angeles that branched out into a crack epidemic all over the country. Now, during this time, the policing policy, I have some friends who actually work for LAPD, and the policing policy was one called containment. Containment basically said, look, there's gonna be all of this gang warfare taking place. Our job is not so much to try to end it. We don't know that we can make it stop, but our job is to make sure that it stays in certain geographic areas, that it has boundaries on it and it doesn't spill over into the nice suburbs. And so this policy of containment caused certain parts of the United States to become like war zones while other parts were protected by the police. And if you look at the history of policing in the US, the, 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 the way that the United States approached policing, it was racialized from the very beginning and that tendency continued. Now I'm gonna pause for a moment because I've got friends who are police officers. I got friends who are retired police officers. I got a police officer living across the street from, my, uh, from me. That's my, my friend and a parole officer right down the street who's my friend. So hear what I'm saying here. I am not saying that police are bad. I'm not saying all police are bad. I'm not even saying police are bad in general. I'm not even talking about good and bad individuals. What I'm talking about is a system. Here's, let me explain how systems work there was an experiment done with monkeys. They wanted to make sure that they could control these monkeys and not get them to climb all over cages. And so they did this experiment. They hung bananas from the center of the monkey cage. And, uh, you know, sometimes I refer to these sociological experiments and stuff like that. You guys really got to do your homework because I'm not going to cite everything. But here you go. So these bananas are hanging from the ceiling. They have these monkeys in there. Naturally, the monkeys are going to climb the, to the ceiling to try to this fencing at the top to try to get those monkeys, But what they would uh, to get those bananas. But every time they did that, they would turn the hose on them and knock them down. Now, this happened over and over again. And then they gradually stopped... Uh, doing that. They stopped attacking them for grabbing the bananas, but what they did is they started gradually rotating in other monkeys that had never experienced being attacked for grabbing those bananas. And what would happen is, as one of the new monkeys that had never experienced that tried to grab the bananas, the old ones, the ones that had experienced it, would grab them and stop them. Over time, as they gradually rotated in more and more that had never been conditioned this way, they found that they could get rid of all of the original ones. The new ones coming in automatically knew because they had been socialized and trained by the others, you don't go up there and grab from that ceiling. So they didn't even know why you don't do it. All they knew was you don't do it because over time, the socialization had changed the uh, the the um intention you you don't have to have a reason why you do this all you know is that it's always been done this way and each new group coming in is socialized to that same pattern. Now, let me apply this to policing. If you have a system that was originally designed along racial lines and it was designed to keep a particular population under control and new recruits come in, they come into a system that has policies and procedures, ways of doing things that they don't even necessarily understand that still operate in exactly the same way. Am I saying that no one had malicious intent? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that there are people who participate who don't have malicious intent and yet they are in a system that has malicious outcomes. So let's, let's talk about what happened in the 80s. Democrat comes into office. Bill Clinton, he's running for, for president. He realizes that one of the issues that is constantly being used by the Republican Party is the issue of crime, and usually they will racialize conversations about crime. Uh, The Willie Horton example, they they will show images of black people as criminals and get people afraid and then talk about being tough on crime and say the Democrats are weak on crime, etc. In response to that, Bill Clinton said he was committed to putting 100,000 more police on the street. And he kept that promise. In addition to that, his wife, Hillary Clinton, made the statement that there were these people, these, these black youth that are like super predators and we got to get them off the street. All this racist language and this hyper focus on uh, increasing police presence, giving police all kinds of military equipment, stuff like that, that became a way that the Democratic Party was competing for votes with the Republican Party. That led to three strikes laws, etc., and that led to where we are today with extreme mass incarceration that is like nothing that the world has ever seen. Now, as Christians, we often focus on our need to respect those in authority, our need to follow the laws, etc., and all that is important from the word of God. But let me give you an example of how God responds when a system is set up to produce outcomes and there are consequences that are not in line with what God wants. Come with me to the book of Numbers. We're going to go all the way back to the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 2. And I want to introduce you to, two, uh, to a, a group of women who were protesters all the way back during the days of Moses. Numbers chapter two, we pick up in verse one. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clan of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. Notice that God wants their names recorded. Their names are recorded in the word of God because their, their work was so significant. And so these daughters of Zelophehad, these sisters, uh, they got together and it says, they went forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance of the tent of meeting and said, pause with me for a moment and let me set the stage for you. I want you to picture all of the elders of Israel. This is a patrilineal society. Uh, You have Moses there as the leader. They have already come through the Red Sea and, and God launched all these plagues on Egypt. And so they have seen Moses Perform miracles by the power of God, and he is now leading this massive group of people as they are in the desert uh, on their way to the promised land. And they know they're going to the promised land where the land will be divided among the 12 tribes of Israel and among each of the uh, clans within those tribes. Then a group of women, these daughters of this guy Zelophehad, they come before all of the elders and Moses and the assembly of all Israel, and they say, we have a problem, listen to our case. I want you to picture it because I want you to understand the level of boldness that it would take for these women to speak up in the way that they did. Now let's look at what they actually said. Picking up at verse three, it says, our father died in the wilderness, He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no sons? Give us property among our father's relatives. What exactly is going on here? This is a court case. They are standing in front of the, the judge Moses, as well as all of the other elders and all of the people of Israel. And they are anticipating as they present their case, that there may be an attempt to discredit the victim. So they say, first of all, our father, he just died of old age in the wilderness. He was not part of any rebellion. He didn't have any criminal record. Our dad was a good guy, they're saying. So let's get that out of the way right away. But then they said, he died without sons which means in a patrilineal society, he would have no land inheritance. Instead, that land inheritance would go to the nearest male relative, which would not be his sons or or even a brother in this case. It would go to another distant relative. And these women would be in a situation with no family land. There would be no inheritance for their children to go back and say, oh, we are descendants of this guy. Uh, This is where our ancestral land is. So they're saying his name will disappear. The ancestral land will be taken. Give us the land. Now the law was given to Moses by God, but these women have the audacity to say to Moses and to the elders of Israel, the law does not work for us and it has an outcome on us that is actually unjust. Now, when you take a look in the United States uh, at how policing is done, how incarceration is done, for that matter, how, um, going back to land laws and segregation and, and, and all of this, you'll find All of these racial disparities in the United States, they're enormous. And so you have these these outcomes that are unjust and people will say, well, I don't have anything against black people. I don't have anything against Asian people, et cetera. But what we are talking about here is, are there systems, maybe even systems that were initially designed to disenfranchise one group that are still having that latent effect in the United States. We'll revisit that in a moment as we finish up our story with these these women. Now, what strikes me about this case is Moses has gotten the law from God and they come forward and they challenge the outcomes that the law is producing. I can anticipate how I would have responded to that. My natural instinct would would be to say, you know, I have nothing against you, and are you saying that I'm discriminating? You're saying I'm a bad person? I'm not a bad person. You guys go back to your, your homes, and when you get married, you'll be fine, okay? That's kind of an instinctual, instinctual way that leaders respond to criticism, but Moses doesn't do that. Take a look at how Moses responds. In verse 5, it says, so Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to him, what Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Now imagine if Moses did not have the human, whether the system was just if Moses assumed that good intentions meant that the system was good, he would have never even brought the case before God. But as he brings the case before God, God, the one who originally gave the law in the first place, says, here's an example of how the law has to constantly be adjusted. And I believe that this story is in the word of God to remind us that the need for civic engagement is an ongoing need. There will always be things that are unintentional consequences of systems, or in some cases, even unjust intentional consequences that have to be adjusted, have to be tweaked. And it has to happen by someone having the kind of courage that these women did to stand up and say, we demand to be heard. We demand that the law be changed because it is having a negative impact on us. Now, watch what happens with these sisters after that. They are given land. God says, give them the land. But God goes on from that. In verse eight, God adds something to his instruction to Moses. He says, Say to the Israelites, If a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of law for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. What we see here is God said, this is not an isolated incident. This is something that either has happened before or will happen before unless we change the way the system works. So he said, in this case, give these women their land, their father's ancestral land. And here's how it is to work from now on. Any woman in this situation in the future they are always to be given this land. If these women had not had the courage to speak up, not only would they have lost out and their, their descendants would have lost out, but all women in that situation within that society would have lost out. And so when you see people who have the courage to protest, who have the courage to speak up, who have the courage to cry out against injustice, we need to be grateful to God for the courage that they have, because that is how change happens. Even within the word of God, that is how change happens. Now, here in the United States, we have immigration laws that were originally put into place for one reason, to keep Asians out. The uh, immigration and naturalization law in the early 1900s was put into place to keep Asians out. And there were a couple of challenges to those laws. One was made by a Japanese man who said, um, I actually am an upstanding uh, um, person and I want to be naturalized in the United States. I want to be recognized as a, as a citizen. But at that time, there were two classes of citizens in the United States. One was freed white people and the other was people of African descent. And there were these two categories so that segregation could be maintained. So you were either white or you were black and otherwise you could not be naturalized in the United States. So a Japanese man challenges that. The, the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. He loses the case. And they declared that he was not considered white, even though he argued that his skin was whiter than the average white person. Now, another person brought a, a similar case. And he was an Indian guy, uh, a Sikh. And he brought a case. He had actually fought in World War I also. And he said, I am actually literally Caucasian because my people are Aryans, my people uh, are from the Caucasus mountains, Uh, I am an Indo-European, and therefore should be classified as white. The Supreme Court, once again, in a universal decision, the Supreme Court said, a, a unanimous decision rather, that you are not white by the common understanding of whiteness that the average person has. And so his case also was thrown out. I bring up these two cases that, that, that happened in the early 1900s, this is in the 1920s, that I bring up these two cases to point out how the system of, of classification in the United States was structured. It was structured around this idea of whiteness. Now, I know whenever we talk about race, there are people who are, who are white, meaning they have you know light skin, who will feel attacked or defensive and feel like, Well, what about other people who are racist? We're not talking about here people having bad feelings towards someone who is different. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about systemic racism. I'm talking about a designed government system built on an idea called race and build on a concept called whiteness. The idea of whiteness in law and policy is not the physical characteristic of white skin and it is not in fact European ancestry. It is an economic and political construct designed to give benefits to some and deny benefits to others. And so these two gentlemen, the one uh, Japanese gentleman and the Indian gentleman, they didn't challenge that system they just brought their case and said, we want to be naturalized in the category that you have called white. They didn't challenge the category itself as being unjust, though I'm sure they recognized that it was. They were just saying, given the system being what it is, how do we get in on the good side of it and not be by default classified as black or not having classification at all? Now, the the latter case, the one with the Indian guy, actually had terrible effect because it retroactively took away land rights from people who were in the United States of Indian descent. So I say all of this to say um, the Bible teaches us the principle of civic engagement, that there are times when systems have negative impacts and those systems have to be challenged at a systemic level. So let's look at our lessons from the Daughters of Zalafahad. Take a look at this last slide. Here's what we learned there will always be a need to speak up for for justice. Even God's law given to Moses was designed to be responsive to the needs of people. God himself demonstrated the need for flexible policies to ensure and maintain justice for all. So right now, as we are um, listening to the cries of people in the street, as people are protesting and so forth, I think we need to pay very close attention to those who are crying out saying that the systems in America are unjust and crying for systemic change. Systemic change, for example, in policing where we have uh, our budgets in some cities, 50% of the budget goes to policing. Police have been complaining for decades that when there is a mental health issue, when there's somebody is homeless, that they are the only ones that are being called, even though they're not trained as mental health professionals or they're not trained as housing professionals. They are the, the people who by default are called in for situations that if we had funded those other areas of government services, the police would never have to show up in the first place. Um, I want to also just end with this slide of um, incarceration rates in the United States compared to other countries to show you why some people are believing that our criminal justice system needs to be revamped from the ground up, including policing, jails, uh, the parole system, all of it needs to be reevaluated. It did not... Beg- the country didn't begin this way, it became this way, really uh, dramatically changed within the last 40 years, um, and it can be undone. Take a look at this. In the United States, we have uh, an incarceration rate that is um, astronomically above any other um, country, a prosperous country in the world. Even if you look at California and Compare it to the rest of the world. California is more than three ta- incarcerates more than three times the rate of people that the United Kingdom does, or Portugal, or Luxembourg, et cetera, et cetera. The closest country to us, um, even uh, the United Kingdom, is way behind us. We are in the the 600 and uh, our, I think it's 698. Um, People for, well, I get the, I, I, I'm, I'm going to misquote the thousands here, but this is, these rates are per 100,000. We incarcerate 698 people per 100,000, whereas California incarcerates 581 per uh, 100,000. Our closest competitor, England, 139 per 100,000. Things need to change, you guys. Uh, I'm going to probably have to pick this up again next week, but let me just say this. When you hear people saying things like defund the police, don't have a knee-jerk reaction. When you hear people saying that they think that the policing needs to change, don't think they're talking about individuals who are out there protecting and serving every day. What they're saying is maybe we're allocating too much of our resources to a system that has detrimental outcomes and there's a better way to do it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you care about systems, you care about injustice, you care about what's going on in our hearts, but you also care, Lord, about how we build a society. And so I pray that you'll give us wisdom and understanding. I pray that you'll guide us as we now, with this intensity of protests, that you will guide us, Lord, to examine how we do things, to envision a better way, and especially like Moses, to bring these cases before you and ask for your guidance as we make changes. I pray, Lord, for harmony and love. I pray that you will overcome the fear, fear of people who look different, fear of people who wear a uniform. I pray, God, that you will overcome hatred and that instead we will lovingly come together to solve the social ills that are killing and harming so many people. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you want to look this up and learn more about it, there's a website called prisonpolicy.org. Prisonpolicy.org is a great place to find some resources on this subject. You know, I'm reminded whenever I delve into these things that I serve and worship a God who loved us enough to come into an unjust world as a person who was persecuted, as a person who was a minority. And as a person, in fact, who experienced brutality of being arrested falsely by heavily armed people. And on the night before he did that, on the night before he gave himself to be tortured to death, to take away our sins, and to uh, give us the ability to be in right standing with God and in right standing with one another, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Will you take this with me? He said, this is my body that is broken for you. And as often as you eat it, you do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is now the cup of my blood that will be shed for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you drink it, you do it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, you told us that you would not drink that cup again until you drank it anew in the kingdom of your Father. We pray, Lord, for the day to come, your kingdom to come, when justice rolls down like water. We pray for the day when you wipe away every tear, when you make all things right, and in the meantime, may we shine a little bit of that kingdom into every corner of this world that we occupy.